what was it that drove you towards that profession? Yeah. So most people don't figure out what they want to be when they grow up until they're in the process of like going to college and growing up. I've known that I've wanted to be a social worker since I was 15. Um, that is when A, my little brother was born and B, when my parents got clean. And when you live in a very small town, as I'm sure you can empathize with, mm -hmm. I don't know how word gets out, but it does. There are no secrets here. No. And, um, you know, somehow my parents' addiction got out into the world. And um, I was in ninth grade and my brother was in seventh grade. Tracy had just graduated. So while it was still very difficult for her, Ty and I had a different struggle. Um, and it's like we we went to school and we would see people whispering <sighs> and we would feel like they were talking about us and and judging us and so we pretty much stopped going to school we were like nope don't want to deal with that bullshit wow. um and then the school principal said you're going to be charged with truancy if you don't start coming to school. Um, and the way that we can keep this out of the court is by you going to see the school social worker. It was kind of a deal that we made. Who was the social worker? His name was Pete. Pete was the social worker? Do you know Pete? Uh, yeah. Yeah? <laughs> I have a story, but continue. Okay. Uh, so we were dicks to Pete <laughs> because we didn't want to be there. It, it was, it didn't feel voluntary because it was like, hey, you have to do this thing or you're going to court. And I don't know what that outcome could be. Pete was also like, kind of like a human chihuahua. Like he was so. It's a good timid. way of describing him. He's timid. He would get shaky sometimes, and it was like, I'm supposed to like put my faith in you, for, <laughs> like helping my mental issues. So it's it's funny. Like some people would like kind of walk all over him. Every now and then he would be like, I have a degree. <laughs> I'm a real social worker. You need to listen to what I have to say. Yep. So it was very funny, like, because he, I mean, at that point, he'd been there, what, like a year or two? Yeah, not long. <laughs> yeah. Not long. And then. I and, got Pete year one. Yeah. Uh -huh. Oh, man. We, we had a tough caseload. Look at us. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, especially Ty put him through the ringer. Um, but he really did give it to me straight. And huh. was, huh, I know that's hilarious. <laughs> um, and was like, listen, like, you don't want to come to school because you feel like everybody knows about your parents' addiction and, and you don't want to be a part of this town, essentially. Um, so if you don't want to be a part of this town, you need to get it together, get your grades out of the toilet, and go post secondary. 
to um, St. Cloud Tech. And because my grades were not good enough for me to go to St. Cloud State. Um, so that's what I did. There was a group of you that did that, right? Yep. Which is an, another impressive fucking thing about you guys. Because yeah. Linda did it, right? Yep. And so, I, so did, did Bitsy. Bitsy. Okay. So did Bitsy. So did Kelsey. So did Emily. Um, yeah, that was impressive as fuck. Yeah. So... I think that's when I was like, started saying like, I wish Bitsy was my daughter. <laughs> Because I was like, I'm so proud of you. I know. I know. Uh, and so it was this very interesting time where there was a split in the road and I went one way and Ty went another. And mine was down the path of getting out of this town and self-improvement and figuring out what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be. And I wanted to originally be a school social worker, just like Pete. Mm. Um, looking back, I'm like, oh my God, I hated school. Why would I, why would I want to go back to that? I don't want to do yeah, that. Because um, teachers can be fucking chatty Cathy's and or Caddy Chathy, sorry. <laughs> um, and like because they're in that world and they watch these kids do that thing, I think they unknowingly create their own weird little groups. And it's yeah. like, I don't want to be a part of that shit. So sorry, continue. I mean, no, that's that's pretty much it. Like I went to I went to school. Um, I went post secondary to school. Got all my generals done. Transferred to Saint Cloud State and got a dual degree in social work and women's studies. Moved to Minneapolis and started my grad school experience in social work. Not long after. Holy shit! Wait, so how old were you? Twenty three. Okay. God damn. Good for you. Um. Can you clear something up for me real quick? Mm -hmm. So Ty is, where is he in the mix? He is number three. Ty's two years younger than me. Okay, okay. And then my my little brother. Uh, oh, so that's what you were saying when it came to, you were the middle child for so long. Got yes. It. Yes. Now so I then understand. my little brother, who is almost 17, um, has gone by many names, but uh, is currently going as Ghost. Oh. <gasps> Fuck yeah. Yeah. So does he make music or do they make music? He. He. Okay. Um, but no, but he can play the piano like you would never. Ah, ah. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Self taught. Tell him to come over. Let's make some fucking music. Sound, dude. Sounds dope. I'm sure he would love that. <laughs> um, okay. Now I'll tell my Pete story real quick. And then we'll dive into the addiction stuff. Yeah. So, oh, I'm excited. I started to realize that I had. So I had massive anxiety. Like before they were really like handing it out to like diagnose people, because it seemed like it was like only for adults. You can only yep. have anxiety if you were a grown up. Mm -hmm. But I had these massive attacks like I completely destroyed my room one time like flipped my bed frame and just it looked like a bomb went off in there it was fucking insane and like had hallucinations and it was wild and then one time in school it happened where I thought somebody was gonna beat me up 
and I was panicking because it was my fault. So there were all these thoughts going through my head and I hid under the teacher's desk during class. And he was like, uh, let's all go out into the hallway real quick. As he was scooting people out into the hallway, I ran into his back office and hid under that desk for two to three hours. And so then everybody was like, maybe there's something going on and we should talk about it. Mm-hmm. So then in comes Pete. <laughs> and like I said, brand new, uh, has his books and pamphlets. And I'm like, I, I can figure out when somebody is trying to do the buy the book shit really quickly. Yeah. And it's so disingenuous. So I'm always like, what's your experience? Why did you do this? What? And so like we created like a friendship because I was like such a ball buster towards him, even though I had my own shit. Like, so one day we have this report and I had to see him, I think twice a week. And uh, go in there and he's a little gloomy. And he's like, so how's school going this week? I'm like, it's fine. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Like, Pete. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. Some back and forth. Like, Pete, what's going on? And so our session turned into me helping him with his relationship for half hour to 45 minutes, right before we were, like I was supposed to go to the next class, he goes, what am I doing? I'm supposed to be helping you. I'm like, well, yeah, but dude, you can't, can't help anybody until you help yourself. And after that- Deep shit. Right? So after that, we started a peer, um, not a therapy group, but a peer-to-peer, like, uh, I forget what they would call it, but like, like support group. Yeah. Basically peer to peer support group where, um, if people were comfortable with it, then I would sit in there with them because if they said a a student's name or a situation that Pete wasn't familiar with, then I would be like, I get what you're saying. And then if they wanted to talk to me outside of that, we could do that. It only, it lasted a little bit because nobody else wanted to do it. It was just me. (laughs) But like, that's how to get like to give people perspective on Pete. Like that's where he was at in his life. Like he wanted so bad to be a professional and to be saving kids, but like just had some shit he needed to work out first. And he was pretty young. Yeah, I'm gonna move this pillow. Yeah, get that out of there. Um, but yeah, he he was, you know, not that much older. No, than us. Which is weird to think about. He was definitely younger than I am now. Yeah. Yeah. Dealing with the types of shit (laughs) that we made him deal with. (laughs) Yeah. Like when I was in treatment, there was (laughs) this poor lady like that wanted to help people with addiction. And it was so clear that she had never actually dealt with it in her life. And but she went to school for it and wanted to, you know, do this stuff. And it was like. Man, when you're dealing with adults who are like losing their kids, losing their homes, Mm -hmm. they do not have time for. So in chapter three of. (laughs) And that's so odd to me because most of the time. 
there's something, there's some hardship, there's some pain that gets people into the field that I'm in. Yeah. Um, and especially with chemical dependency. Um, that is a field that I will not touch with a 10 foot pole. It is, <laughs> it, it hits far too close to home. So I know that I st- don't have, th- there are still things that I need to work out. Well, bef- yeah, there's that, that trauma. Like, I mean, Kim, ob- the reason that she's in mental health is because of an experience that she had when she was, fi- that's crazy. When she was 15, um, and w- like just knew from then on, that's what she was going to do. But man, so w- when you were growing up, like, did you recognize that there were chemical dependency issues at home? I didn't know. So my mom went into treatment when I was in third grade. This was her second time. And I was far too young to be able to wrap my head around that. Um, and I knew that there were a lot of mental health struggles that my parents went through, but I didn't, I don't think I knew about their drug use. There were a couple of times, like looking back now, um, Like, I went into their room one time to get something, and um, there was a light bulb that was, like, burnt up. And I didn't understand why. Um, I was just like, oh, that doesn't look like a light bulb should look like. (laughs) You know? um, I was just a kid. Um, So... There were things like that. There was weird smells in my house a lot. Mm. Um but I at the time had no. It was it was very it was pretty shocking when I was 15 and found out that my parents were using meth. But I don't think I knew then um or before then. But my mom has bipolar um and my dad has depression and my dad was much better at i mean i sh- i don't want to make it sound like it's a shameful thing that you should be hiding because we should be talking about mental health but yeah. he was very good about hiding it mm. whereas my mom was aggressively loud about um about it but and then you know of course it's only exacerbated by the fact that you know, she was using um, because of the extreme ups and downs and the mania and the crashing. I'm always curious because I hear so often meth users having some type of bipolar hypomania. I I wonder if like it's that underlying thing that or like it's not activated Mm. until meth is introduced and then boom. For the rest of their life, they will always have this different tone. Like it, it's it's really interesting to me when I when I talk to ex meth users, like 
because they, they, they never seem to truly escape the tone that they had when they were using. Does that make sense? Yeah. And the mania is dope. Like, I mean, you feel amazing. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, you know, Ty also has bipolar and he has done every drug under the sun and he says nothing will compare to the feeling of mania. Yeah. Which if, is really, really telling. I mean, people make jokes about like, let's, let's get manic together. That whole thing. Without realizing because your brain, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but like your brain is constantly trying to level both of the things because your pain receptors and your, I always say joy receptors, but I know that's not exactly what, (laughs) but those two things are trying to stay on like an even keel. Yep. So when one goes high above the other and the other side tries to make up for it, it can result in some dangerous shit. Especially if you're using because like the like the off keel stuff is normally not so bad or or so intense that, you know, you're in danger every single time. But sure. When substance is introduced because it doubles the normal amount, when your brain tries to make up for that to try and bring this down, it is so fucking intense. And I mean, so if you're manic. On top of that, terrifying combination. Right. I mean, most of us kind of do this. Yeah. You know, we have our baseline and we go up and down. But for people who use meth and have bipolar, it's like this. The the extremes of the ups and downs. Yeah. And they a lot of times talk like they have no filter. And they'll say like, I just don't have a filter. And it's like, I know. There's something else. Yeah. You could have a filter. And I hear way too often that they don't want to be on meds because then they're not themselves. Yes. But what they're really saying is that I don't get to experience the mania. Um, I can't remember where I heard this, but bipolar, people who have bipolar disorder are one of the toughest to take a daily medication regimen um people who have this struggle don't often keep up with their meds maybe because of that i i think that because i mean i don't know how often you hear it but that's all that's like the number one thing that i hear when they either are like i'm getting off my meds soon because i i want to feel like myself again it's like god you're there, your brain is so used to that fucking crazy roller coaster that it thinks that it needs to do this thing mm-hmm. because we're missing the the big the big ups, and your midbrain is like that. That's how we know we're surviving is when we have the dopamine, the really good stuff. And if it's not at the level that we carved this fucking path for, yep, to make up for it, then that must mean we're not surviving, right? So, yeah, it manifests. The brain doesn't give a fuck about your feelings. Mm-hmm. Like, really, yep. all, all it cares about is survival, and it thinks that dopamine equates to survival. So, I hear that so often, and I think that, like, 
the way that we've evolved, that's uh, what the brain thinks is a survival skill is meds Im- impede on the dopamine, which means it impedes on our survival. Yep. So figure out how to verbalize that to our brain. So what's the vernacular in the world now? Oh, pills, they make you into a zombie. Yep. They do all these things and make you not yourself. When in reality, it, you can't just take meds. You got to do the other work. Yeah, you do. <laughs> it's so much work, but yeah, you do. Sorry, I had to go on that tangent because I have too many bipolar friends who s- tell me that stuff. And I'm like, your brain is fucking with you. Yeah. You, you got, if you're feeling that way, then you got to talk to somebody else to try and fix whatever issue you're actually having that makes you think that you need the dopamine to feel better on that subconscious level. And therapy rules. Yes. It, it rules. Which is ironic because I don't go to therapy, but I do this. Mm-hmm. So I'm constantly addressing it. Yeah. There's different types of therapy. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I keep going off of these tangents. I just. <laughs> it's totally for, fine. I, I love having people who know what I'm talking about mm-hmm. on. Especially like when you see it so often, like. Yeah, it. Uh, people. Social work is so wildly underappreciated. Thank you. In the the stuff that you guys have to deal with. Like, and there's so many different types of social work. Yeah. Like people think that it's just a lady who finds kids and helps them get rehomed and that's child it. protection. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But there's so so much more. It's it's a wildly important field, I feel. And it marries so well with the mental health field yes like they're very it's would copacetic be yeah yeah it's copacetic and i mean there there are tons of social workers who are in the mental health field for sure um but back to your addiction (laughs) yeah okay sorry i pointed very aggressively was so at 15 Mm -hmm. you learn about this shit yep and what was your view on substance in general before that, like alcohol or weed or anything like that? I mean, alcohol was always something that was around. Um, it was very normalized to to drink with family. Um, we had, you know, a giant backyard, which um, people would come over. We'd have bonfires. We would all drink together. Um for some reason, my parents would have an issue if Ty and I were drinking not in that setting. But mm-hmm. if we were in that setting, you're with family, you're safe. It was, you know, me and Tracy and Ty and a bunch of cousins um, all kind of looking out for each other. Um, but I, I mean, I remember having Mike's hard and shitty water coolers. <laughs> um, what was it? Uh, BJ's? Those uh, those wine coolers that had like the blue label up at the top. Fucking Boone's Farm? Oh, Boone's Farm was one for sure. Oh, okay. That's I, what I, I thought you were talking about. No, like, oh, there were God. these little... Uh, anyways. Um, yeah, so we... It, yeah, it was, it was very, very normalized when from 
the time that we were very young um, that drinking drinking was fine because it's not the same as, mm. you know, and um, yeah, then around the same time that my parents addiction came out, Ty was in a really bad four wheeling accident. Oh, geez. And uh, broke his arm. And this is where Ty's story and Tyler's brother, um, Jordan's story, really, really intersect and are pretty parallel for a while because he was prescribed Oxycontin at age 12. <sighs> um, Jesus Christ. Yeah. I mean, looking back on that now, I can't even believe it. Um, and of course, Ty's choices are his own. He made them, but that was definitely a point in his life that he took a turn that put him down a certain path, which led him to where he is today. And I have you heard the phrasing that, um, addiction is the disease of choice. I have not, actually. So the concept being that you chose to use, but you didn't have a choice as to what it was going to do to your chemical makeup. Right. So there are some people that can take that and it doesn't activate that um, that uh, dopamine receiver to create that new channel to allow for more dopamine to be introduced. Um. But in the addict, I mean, they're still doing tons of research to figure out what that actual thing that gets activated is and why it chooses to create that channel. Because it literally carves out a a space in your brain to accommodate for more dopamine. So at a certain point, or it could be immediately that your brain just flips that switch. And then now you it's all in this subconscious. It's that midbrain saying, ah, survival juice. Yes. <clears throat> so the Oxycontin gives us more survival juice, which means we're fucking killing it. We're surviving super good. Yep. So it, I obviously being an addict, like I always have to defend that part of it. If people hear that and then still don't address it, there's nothing I can do for you. Right. But I always have to give the addict that chance to say, because like if I didn't get that little bit of information, I'd, I'm positive I would have relapsed and all the shit would have just kept repeating itself. But having that objective truth introduced to how addiction actually functions on like a biological level makes so much fucking sense as to why someone's like, I didn't even want to drink or I didn't even want to go to this dude's house, but I just ended up there. Yeah. Like your brain just thinks on a subconscious level that that's the only way you're going to survive. So it's like being brainwashed in a sense. So yeah, that, that is actually a really good way to describe it. So yes. So, and I say that because people get, really broken hearted at having to like turn away from a loved one when they're too deep into addiction like 
they're like when they say like I have to wash my hands of the situation and back up like that's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And I hope that it makes people feel better knowing that like there is something behind the scenes at work that has taken over the person that you loved. There's hope for it for sure, but like knowing that there's some other thing that doesn't give a shit about anybody's feelings. I mean, I yeah, I just hope that 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 helps people. Yeah, and and <clears throat> on that same side of the coin, it still fucking hurts. Yeah. Like I never got to a point where I cut Ty off. Lots of other friends and family members did. Um I just they were like I just can't deal with being hurt over and over and over again. Um, and I do not demonize them for that. I do not. Oh yeah. No. Um, I get it. Um, but it, it's still, even though I know the mechanics of addiction, I, it still felt like you choose that over me every time Mm -hmm. well we're we're the vehicle of the disease so because it doesn't actually look like there's no broken arm there's no like my skin's not falling off like it everything looks the same so it appears to be i'm saying this thing is more important than you so i mean imagining that little they describe it like in, in treatment as a little like pet tiger right so you have this little kitten and it's like, oh, that's fucking cute. Look at this little thing. And then, but you have to feed it mm-hmm. and it's going to grow. And eventually people can't come over anymore because it's a fucking tiger. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. you don't, they don't know if it's going to attack or not, no matter how much you try to explain like, no, 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 no. This is, this is my pet. Like, this is fine. Don't worry about it. Somebody gets hurt and people just continue to lose trust. So like. From that perspective, no matter how well-meaning the addict is, because they have to feed this tiger, dangerous shit can happen or emotional um, distress can happen. But there's, there's another thing. And addicts, they fucking try to go to God, and I'm sorry to be a piece of shit atheist, but yeah, dude. That was, that was, a, that was a struggle. <laughs> Um, when we had to do family therapy with my parents, because my parents would always say, it does, it's, they're not talking about God, they're talking about a higher power. And I'm just like, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about God, <laughs> you know, like, and then they're just like, oh no, my, you know, my parents would say, you guys are our higher power. Our, my children are my higher power. And I'm just like, that's not, they're talking about God. <laughs> well, and so when, if you have that outlook, right, because there's so much shame already associated with it and relapse rates only like it, it fluctuates, but like generally five to 7% of people make it out without relapse. And I think a huge part of that is if you let God down, that is the biggest amount of shame yeah. possible. You're talking about your eternity, your eternal soul, and you completely fucked it. Those people. So so that's why, like so many people, the relapse is worse than what it was before. And suicide rates go up. 
domestic violence, goat, like all of these terrible things because they put their their faith in God and they think that they let him down. The number one guy. And there's no, I, I feel like if you are a believer, there's no greater amount of shame than that. For sure. And you, I think that it kind of takes the responsibility off of you where you should want to be clean. You you don't get clean for other people. Yes. Like you get clean for yourself. I can't be the reason that that you get clean because I don't want that type of responsibility, to be totally honest. Yeah. Um that's a huge fucking weight to put on a kid. And yeah, you you should want to be a better person. So when Ty was, you know, working and it's so weird because I think that the CD field is so far behind in so many aspects of if you had 50% of any other population returning, you would look at and say, maybe we're not doing something right. Dude, I was so pissed when I was in treatment. There's hundreds of people, right? So I got to go to like the creme de la creme of treatment centers. It's like one of the top three in the country. Hazelden? Yeah. Yeah. Just fucking crazy that That's I got to Marilyn go where Marilyn Manson went. Yeah. Uh, Eric Clapton. I got to play a guitar that Eric Clapton donated. So rad. Insane. But there's this fucking lady who is basically a timeshare salesman because there's this other unit that they call, what do they call it? Like the house um, where you get to basically live in like your own apartment, like studio apartment. And you study the big book like it's a fucking Bible. Yeah. And her favorite thing to do the beginning of everything what's the definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over again expecting different results okay and then she would say raise your hand if this is your second time in a treatment facility and all these people would raise their hands and she thought she was pointing out a problem with them and my first thing was you just pointed out that you guys are fucking failing at an alarming rate yeah and making millions off of people's suffering. Like this lady lived in Philadelphia and would fly out to Minnesota to work for four days and then go back to Philadelphia. That's how much money she's making. Yeah, dude, that's a fucking tragedy. So I think treatment facilities need to get religion the fuck out of there because there's an objective thing. Just because there's an objective truth doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. If yeah. you want to believe, then say God gave God put this tool here, and I like it. it, it if God's a scientist, he gave you a lab to work in, and what the fuck is that sound? But yeah, just think that God put these tools out there for you to use. You don't have to dismiss him. It's just these labs or classes. You don't have to put everything on him and on the Bible. Let it be these other things so that you can fucking get out of that shithole. And another thing that the current chemical dependency 
industrial complex needs to like wake up to is harm reduction Mm. because abstinence doesn't work for everybody which is hilarious because we know that when it comes to sex (laughs) but for some reason and i'm i'm not saying that there are people who can still use and be safe like we should still help them if their goal is abstinence. Yes, but exactly. When I think back to when Ty was in the throes of fentanyl addiction, he knew that harm reduction is something that I'm very passionate about and he knows that I have access to Narcan, um which is the drug that you administer to somebody who's having an overdose and it blocks your receptors. Um that was a funny thing that I learned in treatment was that uh uh counselors talking about how when you administer Narcan, uh half the time those people come out of it and they're like, Why the fuck did you do that? You completely ruined my high. Yes, that is a thing. <laughs> and you know what? You can be mad at me every time because you're still here. Yeah. You know, that's just fine. But that's such that should speak volumes to how addiction like literally takes over you right you ruined my survival skill and i got i got shit from so many people that were like you are just indulging him you are yeah you're enabling you're enabling you are being codependent you Mm. are this and are that And to that, I say he would be dead. 100%. He's told me this several times, him and his ex-partner. If you did not drop off Narcan when you did, and there were times where I couldn't even bear to see the state that he was in, I would go and drop it off on his porch, drive out of the trailer park, and then text him and say, hey, there's Narcan on top of your grill. Because I, it was hard for me to see him. Um, but that got him to a point where... I mean, he actually wasn't ever ready to recover. He's in prison right now. So he was forced to recover when he got raided and picked up. Mm. But I kept him, I helped keep him alive until that point. And I don't regret that. I'll never regret that. And it's not enabling to keep somebody alive until they realize that they have a problem. Yeah. Give me one second. The fascinating thing to me, when we started doing the Not So Anonymous Alcoholic, it fascinated me that only certain substances would trigger the addictive behavior. Mm. Like, I know multiple, many people who were alcoholics and then got sober but smoke weed and they don't have the same desire for weed that they did for alcohol. Yep. And so when I hear of people like 
uh, like quitting some hard drug and then they drink and everything's fine. Like Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated as to what happens in the brain that it doesn't hit that, that switch, even though it's a substance that can increase dopamine and, and do these things. Like how is it that it doesn't manipulate the brain the same way that that other thing did? Yeah. And one of my friends went through treatment as an alcoholic and can still casually drink, which is mind blowing to me because I've never known anyone to be able to do that. Right. And I'm curious, did they have mental health issues? Yes. Did they address those issues? Yes. I think that's the key. Almost there was one person that I met in treatment that didn't have some underlying mental health issue or trauma, like something. There was always something that had to do with their state of mind that they needed this substance to get an escape from that as well. And again, that's another thing that is rare in treatment centers that they're mm-hmm. actually dealing with trauma. I've I've been hearing about a couple uh, centers that are... they. That's their main focus is trauma and why it triggers your addiction, the addictive behavior. Um, I, yeah, I just I think that's such a huge key. But please continue with the harm reduction. I mean, it's I see this with the youth that I work with a lot. Um, you know, of course, I would love for them to be sober because I worry about them. But in the grand scheme of things, would I rather have them smoking pot or shooting heroin? Would I rather have them snort heroin than shoot it? Yeah, because those are ways, those are safer ways of ingesting. It's still not safe by any means, but it's safer (laughs) when you're talking about dirty needles and reusing the same needles over and over again. And I knew a guy or I know a guy who uh, (laughs) had a fear of needles. So he would take the needle out and use it as a syringe and squirt it into his nose. So this burning hot liquid. He said it felt like it was like melting his brain as it like just dripped crazy. Yeah. Ugh. And, you know, there were so many times where I literally watched Ty do fentanyl without knowing that he was doing fentanyl. See, I'm confused by fentanyl because I remember when it started to come out in the news and Kim was like, "Those there are patches. How are people using fentanyl in other ways? So some asshole found like the ingredient and then was distributing it as a like. So was it a powder form, a pill form? I still don't know. So there are many ways that you can ingest fentanyl. Fentanyl is an extreme painkiller. It's like okay. morphine. Okay. Um, when Tracy had her C-section, they gave her fentanyl. Right. Like very intense pain um, killer slash muscle relaxant. Um, He would take fentanyl nasally. Mm. It was just this little choot choot thing. Like a spray? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It would come 
hella concentrated and you'd mix it with water. Uh. And and then you'd spray it up your nose. I remember driving in my dad's camper to Rockfest in Wisconsin. Yes. And Ty was driving and he just kept like putting this nasal stuff in his, I thought he was sick. And he would pass it over to his partner, who's in the front seat. She would do uh. it, send it back to him. And I had no idea that he was driving all of us under the influence. Holy shit. Um, I just, I had never known that that was a way that you could ingest Narcan. Sorry, that you could ingest fentanyl. Right. Um, and so I didn't think anything of it. That's what's so scary. Like the other scary thing about fentanyl is like, it's a mystery as to like where it can end up, like hearing about it ending up in cocaine or hearing about it ending up in heroin and like all of these things that like when combined with feels like fucking anything could kill you. Yep. It's terrifying. And <laughs> being in the neighborhood where like ground zero is <laughs> not far away at all. Right. Is weird. Because I feel bad. I've had a couple of people who have come over and been like, dude, that's the house. And I'm like, ah, I'm sorry. I didn't even think about. But there's no other way into the neighborhood. Like, you have to pass that fucking house. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's wild because, you know, there. It's really. I think that it's really easy for us to demonize dealers. And Ty was, he was one of the the main drug dealers in Becker, but he did that to fund his own addiction. Right. Um, I'm not saying that that isn't still a shitty thing that he shouldn't have done, but when it comes down to it, like, he was either getting high off his own supply or selling so that he could finance his addiction. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, th again, that's another way that your brain goes. How can we make sure that we have access to this stuff at all the time? And sometimes it goes to that. Like, um, there was a, a guy in treatment who was, and people, like, gave him shit for it, but he came in there because of marijuana. Okay. And what we found out was the real addiction was the process because people forget that like the ritual of the thing is also a huge part of addiction that muscle memory that builds up so for him he got to smoke weed constantly and was distributing it so there was this big high from getting away with doing this shit and, right like so that and that has to do with your whole fucking with your fight or flight thing. That's why you know there's people that love horror movies and shit like that because you're like, ah, whew, that was that's me, scary, but <laughs> I'm still alive. Everything's okay. Yep. Like the same thing goes for like it's it's thrill chasing. Mm -hmm. And then when you have a substance that's tied to it, uh, like you could be addicted to anything. You definitely can, and I also think that it comes with community yeah um you know 
you if you're it sucks but when you get clean and your and your squad doesn't Ooh. you need to make a lot of really tough decisions about whether or not those people are going to be your squad anymore because Ty has lost a lot of friends um because they're in different places in their life than he is um even when he was out and he was still using his best friend was getting clean and she told him like i'm sorry we just like for right now we just can't talk um while while i'm figuring my own shit out and ty has always been a fairly self-aware drug addict mm-hmm. so he's like i get that like i'm not even mad like you do you but that's not what i'm doing mm. um and now they're able to be friends again because they're both clean and they both recognize that they're able to connect with each other like on a different level yeah well that's yeah that, trauma bonding like when you survive something there's a I mean, that's why I love talking to people in the mental health field or addicts in recovery because it's hard to conceptualize what that struggle is like because it's it's so personal and it's like trying to describe a dream to somebody almost. Mm-hmm. And because, I mean, when you talk to people, <laughs> I hate <laughs> somebody who's drinking and then they're asking me about like recovery. like. <laughs> Weird. It's an odd time to bring this up, guy. Yeah. You drink, it's fine, but <laughs> let's not fucking pretend that I want to talk about it while you're sipping the thing that like my body is still like, hey, just grab it out of his hand. Right. <laughs> but yeah, so it's a weird thing to like, because it, it force like people get uncomfortable because they do that rapid thought process of, am I addicted? No, I'm not addicted. I don't think that I could ever choose this over anything that's important in my life. And so they get like uncomfortable at the the thought of like, I could never do that. What type of person are you that you mm. did allow that to happen? And like, I see that they're trying not to be judgy, but it's like, we have different lawns, man. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, by the time that Ty was a full-blown heroin addict. Addiction is nothing new to my family. So it wasn't really even a surprise. Like, every single one of my aunts and uncles is in recovery or still actively using. So, um... That's got to be scary on your part. Like, was there a point where you felt like you were afraid of, like, when is it going to hit? I mean, kind of the opposite, where, uh. like, there were definitely times where I drank heavily and shouldn't have, but it was always like, well, at least it's not as bad as mm. XYZ, you know, hey, this is alcohol, this isn't meth. Um, and, or if it was, if, 
if I was like comparing myself to an aunt or an uncle that struggled with alcohol, well, at least I I waited until 7 p.m. to start. Yes, um, dude, the clock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, there. I mean, there were definitely times where like I got more drunk than I should have, and it was very also normalized, you know, in in the queer community. Um. And but it was I always kind of was able to justify it with it's not a hardcore drug. And well, like uh, Molly and ecstasy are, from what I understand, floating around that community as well, which mm. fucking scary. I mean, yeah, it's a party drug. It's a club drug. Um, So that was that's also never been my type of scene because from what I know about MDMA is it's either cut with meth or heroin. Oh, wow. And I can't bring myself to ingest either one of those. Um, I'm too afraid that I would really like it. Yeah. See, and that's the thing that those, that, that what I was describing, like those other people are like, no, never. And I think deep down they're like, but what if? What if I did like that? I know. And I've had plenty of friends who go to a show and they do it and it's not problematic. You know, they're just like, this is a thing that I do every once in a while and that's okay. But I worry that the addictive genes that I have would take over and that I wouldn't be able to just use it to have fun every once in a while. So I won't even, I won't even mess with that. I have my own theories of certain aspects of substance use, uh, like the controlled addict, which to me, they do these things and they're like, oh, I haven't, but I haven't done it for months. But in the back of your mind, you're like, oh, I could do it at any time. So there's no conflict in your mind. So you don't have that like fiending or like desperation feel towards it if somebody confronted you and said don't ever do it again and your mind goes why the fuck not yeah then that's your midbrain trying to protect and be like whoa, 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 whoa we need that like every two months we go do a thing and that's a huge part of us surviving so don't let that be cut off like people who say that they haven't drank in X amount of months. I'm like, well, are you quitting? Or are you just like, why are you telling me this? Yeah. If you're going to go back and do it, then I don't fucking care. Right. You're just, you're nothing has changed for you. Mm -hmm. So I always try to challenge people to be like, how do you feel when somebody tells you not to do it? Are you aggressive? Are you like, like, what's your mentality towards that person? Because if you start to feel negatively towards them, then I think you should maybe confront what the fuck you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, while this was going on, how dare you? That's the end. <laughs> um, while this is going on with your, your brother, what were your parents doing? Like, were they attempting to get him clean or were they too deep in their own shit like 
Ty went to treatment as a minor a couple of times. How old was he? Um, so let me back up for a second. Yes. Um, I actually have this stuff fresh in my brain because, um, Ty is part, and I can't say a ton about it because it's like ongoing, but uh, he is a part of a class action lawsuit against Purdue Pharmacy mm. um, for, which is the biggest manufacturer of Oxycontin. Do you see they're making a show about it? Yes. And I am so looking forward to it. Same. Um, because it's like documentary-esque, but still like a show. It's like scripted. Is that what's considered a biopic when it's like it's truth? Oh, yeah. That's probably a good way of putting it. Right. It's like they're pointing out. So they're taking real life scenarios and just dramatizing it in a in a way that they can convey what the fuck was actually happening. Yeah. But it, that shit was really happening. Yeah. The and Mormon community was affected fucking huge. Really? Yeah. Because. Their thing was, it's prescribed by a doctor, so it's okay. Yeah. This isn't something we need to be worried about. A doctor can be trusted, and it just blew up in their faces, and they tried to handle it internally. Yeah. Which, yeah, so Utah got hit fucking hard. But I, Yeah, I had no idea. Um, that's so interesting. But he's gathering this documentation to show that he at many points was just fed this medicine um and nobody once thought maybe we shouldn't be giving a prepubescent child highly addictive medicine and i don't know if they knew the the level of addictiveness that that was in oxycontin but you know he he went to this place called the eau claire academy um in eau claire wisconsin when he was 16 he went to clara's house ah. in saint cloud when he was probably 14 and he he went to this place in Brainerd called Port when he was 12 but that was for like that that wasn't necessarily about addiction that was about behavior mm. but when it boils down to it <laughs> it was about addiction um and so I remember him going and like being out of the home three separate times wow. as a minor. Um, and then it wasn't my parents, again, weren't so concerned about the drug use as the like maybe they were in denial about the drug use, but it was about his behavior. Mm. Um, like my dad had a truck and Ty would come over and he would borrow the truck and he would say, I just need to, I'm just helping my friend move this thing. I'll be back in a couple hours and days would pass. Um, 
but it never was, wow, I'm concerned about Ty. Where has he been for four days? It's, I need my fucking truck. So, um, it was, it was mostly focused on, on his behavior at that time. Well, the, the opiate stuff was the reason why it took so long for it to like really be addressed is they would blame it on an addict. So they would say like, no, 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 it's not addictive. That person was an addict. So that's why they abused it. Right. They took advantage of us. We, we're just trying to help. And so they just kept on prescribing it to people. And, and they're like, you're not an addict, so everything's going to be fine. Right. Without and, realizing how addictive it is. And I come from a long line of blue collar workers. I was a first generation college student. Um, oh, wow. Not only within my parents and siblings, within my entire family. I was the first person to go to college in my Holy shit. entire family, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, parents. And, you know, my my family did low skill, low education, manual labor, which is very tough on your body. All of their bodies are broken. And they are all described pain medication and muscle relaxants. Mm-hmm. So when Ty ran out, he always had somebody he could go to. Oh, fuck. Yeah. And they thought they were helping. Yeah. Because. Because they can relate. They can be, oh my God. Because, oh shit, your back hurts because of this thing. My back hurts because of that thing. Here you go. Wow. God, that's fucking tough. Because you're right. They do that. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, my uncles (laughs) did that with me. Like I was in New York. I was doing shrooms out there and I was up all night and my uncle like new and so the next day he was like well you know drink your energy drinks do your thing and uh dig a puking hole because that's what we used to do what so we would put up fences in new york and they were all recovered addicts and they did it's the same thing manual labor they would get fucked up but they had to go to work the next day Mm -hmm. so they would just adapt so my uncle would dig vomiting holes because your body's going to get so jacked up that you're going to throw up at some point. So just do it in a fucking puking hole. It's super weird. Interesting. But yeah, addicts adapt. And when they right. see the other thing, they're like, ah, it's a kid. They'll get over it eventually without recognizing, oh, wait, I went through treatment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ah, man. So... The youngest brother. Mm-hmm. Mom is taking care of him. And she, is she on the same side as dad as far as like, I know what you're going through. Here's whatever. No. um, I definitely think that when Tyler's brother Jordan died, it was a really eye-opening experience because we were all terrified that the next funeral that we went to was going to be his. Every time that I would get a call from an unknown number, I thought that 
it was the paramedics calling me to tell me that Ty was either in the hospital or he was dead. Nobody calls me. We text. Come on, we're millennials. Um, and so, but to this day, I get a call from an unknown number and I still have that wave of panic. Yeah. And um, I'm his power of attorney. So oh, wow. um, I would be the person that um, he, that would be contacted. Um, I've also had the same phone number since I was 15. Okay. So he's like, you are not ever allowed to change your phone number. This is the one number that I know by heart since he's been in prison, in prison. He's, uh, he's, he's memorized other phone numbers, but prior to that, um, the only one that he would be able to call in a tough situation was mine. So was he able to choose you as the power of attorney? Yes. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I, that whole world is, I mean, I'm, I'm eventually going to do a deep dive because of the whole conservatorship and Brittany and, and all that stuff is like, uh, we can't trust anybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's scary. Um, but I would definitely, I, I think that my parents were more mad than anything. They, they weren't hurt or they took it very personally um, that they had went through the struggle to get clean. Um, and you would think that they would be understanding and empathetic, but Instead of that, it was, I'm watching my kid make the same mistakes that I did, and they just would get mad. Yeah. Don't you know? Didn't you see what we went through? Yeah. Yeah. I, I hear that a lot. <sighs> Which, again, is that whole self-reflective thing. That they're like, no, 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 no. Like, it's um, uh, angry concern. Yeah. Like, when you see your kid's about to walk into the street. You're yelling, but it's because don't go in the street. They need to keep you safe. Yeah. Even though they love you, that sounds like this aggressive thing. I'm assuming they don't go to therapy. No. <laughs> so, yeah, they don't have the tools to be able to convey what they mean in that in that time frame. And oof-da. And Ty's been in prison for... Four years now. Holy shit. And they haven't gone to visit him once. Oh, God damn it. And I think that there's so much stuff that they need to unpack that it would be completely overwhelming to see him in a jumpsuit. Oh, man. Which, fun fact, in prison... Um, they have like denim jumpsuits. It's he's like a Canadian tuxedo wearer. <laughs> <laughs> it's a denim button up and denim almost like sweatpants. That is fucking awesome. Yeah, I know. So I made fun of him relentlessly the first time that I went to go visit him because I'm like, what the fuck are you wearing? And he's you just a like car mechanic. He's like, you think that I get to choose this? Um, <laughs> so, yeah. That's so funny because somebody was like, you know, it would be a nice change of pace <laughs> for, for these guys. 
<laughs> Not a bright orange jumpsuit, but denim on denim. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, but it's not funny. Right. I mean, <laughs> we have You got to laugh dark, at something though. Dark senses of humor. You you just <clears throat> you have to laugh to keep from crying kind yes. of a thing. So, um so yeah, like of course I was completely like overwhelmed and excited but also dramatically sad to see ty so how do we talk about things we joke about it that's when i was on the adult mental health unit there was a doctor that anybody who was in the room you would have to shake their hand and go take care you take care you take care (laughs) and it was so funny so like i started making fun of him i was like you take care you take care there's a bear and like so just anything (laughs) that rhymed with care i would just yeah, so even though you're in this, like, dire situation, it's like, what am I, just going to sob for, you know, 72 hours or whatever the fuck? Well, and, you know, he's in he's in prison two hours away from my house in Minneapolis. We only get a two-hour visit, Ugh. and then I drive another two hours home, and right now I can't see him at all because of COVID. Oh, fuck. Um, But when... I was able to, after COVID had already started, they slimmed it down to an hour. So, altogether, four hours of driving for a one-hour visit. God damn. We, like, we talk on the phone all the time, but also when I am able to visit, it's like, we got shit to talk about, you know? Because I didn't drive two hours to sit here and be sad. Ah, like, um, like we, we gotta. Ty is doing amazing in prison, and he's going to school, and um, he's already got certificates. He's working towards a full four-year degree. He's a tutor. He um was the photographer and editor for the restorative justice paper that the prison put out. Like, we. We have these, so part my partner Tyler, um, and I joke about Ty tasks, um, because Ty will call me and he'll be like, "Are you in front of your computer? Can you look up this thing for me?" Ah. And and we'll schedule like computer time, and um, can you help me do this thing? Can you look up this for me? Can you order this book for me? Um, and so we're always. Like, yeah, sometimes he calls me and we just bullshit, but most of the time, like, we're doing stuff. So you're like a newsroom. That's what it feels like. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. That's really cool. It's good to hear, like, it's weird to me when people get upset that they hear that somebody's getting a degree in in prison. Yeah, what a weird thing to be upset about. They're still in fucking prison. You're missing that part. They're like, oh, my tax dollars are going to. Yeah. Prison's supposed to be for rehabilitation, not to sit people in time out. Like, right. We want to fucking help them. For sure. And I mean, do. that was that was his whole thing. He was just like, listen, like, th- I mean, they they threw the book at him. They they were really trying to. Make a statement that like fentanyl wasn't meant to be fucked with when and and people who are fentanyl dealers 
will get the maximum. Um, so I think to a certain point, they tried to make an example out of him. And also, he has several other criminal charges prior to this, so he was fairly well-known um, mm-hmm. in the Sherburn County community. And then when they showed up, I think that part of it was they were just getting sick of seeing him. So, um, I mean, he got 85 months. So um, then that was the max. And he was like, well, what am I going to do for 85 months? I might as well make something of it. Yeah. Because he's just like, I'm in this shitty situation. I'm not going to get out of this shitty situation. At least I can get something out of it. And, and he is, which is amazing. Yeah. And, and yeah, that, I, I love hearing that stuff. That's how it should work. That's how it, it should be going. Um, when it comes to like when you were dating people, mm-hmm. did you have conversations of drug use and things of that nature? So after V and I broke up, I was like, okay, now I'm really not doing the long-term relationship thing again. I'm just like, I'm, nope, I can't make it with her, then I can't make it with anybody. I mean, like, so, would, would she party in in that sense, like using other substances beyond alcohol? No, no. I mean, we would drink together. Okay. But um, after, when I was, like, when I was dating people after we had broken up, um, I never thought that any of it was ever going to lead to anything serious that wasn't a plan of mine. So, um, I never really had those conversations with people because it was just like, you can do whatever because we're not going to end up together. You know, like I'm just here for a good time. And, but it would be funny when I was at, I remember one time I was out on a date and Ty called me and um, if I miss too many of his calls, he'll get worried. Mm. Um, and so I had already missed a couple of his calls that day. So I answered and I was just like, hey, um, hey, dude, just want to let you know I'm alive. Don't worry about me, but I can't talk right now because I'm on a date. And he's just like, oh guy or girl and i was like uh, and this man is sitting across from me right (laughs) and i was like i was like it's a boy and he was just like okay well is he cute and i was like ty i'm literally like i need to go like (laughs) and then i was like can you can you call me tomorrow i'll be free xyz and um you know when somebody calls you from a prison you have to answer and then press a button and then wait a little while for it to like connect so uh. i didn't tell this person that my brother was in prison but he was able to put it together <laughs> by the weird answering looking at my phone pressing zero holding it to my phone waiting 30 seconds before talking and um, I was like, sorry, that was my brother. And then he was just like, 
what was that whole thing? <laughs> and then I was like, well, yeah, he's he's in prison. And people automatically kind of assume that when you go to prison, it's like for violent crime. Yeah. Um. So he was like, oh, shit. You know, <laughs> like, and then I was like, okay, so here's the thing. I don't want to go down this alley, but I also don't want you to be thinking that my brother's like a murderer or something. <laughs> so um, he's in there for drug use. And now I would like to change the subject <laughs> because here we are drinking some ciders, mm. you know, and I'm just like, can we just like not talk about like hardcore addiction, like on a first date, you know? Yeah. Um. So, yeah, it it had come up a couple of times with people that I was casually seeing, but. Um, we, I never really wanted to have any of those serious conversations. Okay. Um, so I have three ender questions. Okay. Hit me. Question number one. Mm -hmm. Um, do you have advice for people who, cause you seemed to stay positive with a fairly, tum and I, Sorry for saying this, but like a tumultuous family dynamic. Oh, that's a nice way of describing <laughs> it. Like, yeah. So, I mean, what was it that you feel kept you positive and and potential advice for, for folks as to... Because surprisingly, there's a still a lot of kids that are dealing with this shit. Yeah, I I think that I wouldn't have been able to deal with that if it wasn't for other positive supports that I had in my life. Um my my older sister being probably the main one. Um Tracy and I are really close. We talk almost every day. And um you know, me, her and Ty became very close when my parents were going through their addiction. And then also... You can plop that over there. It's fine. Empty. Um, and then also when Ty was going through his addiction to have my, my sister also be there and then my littlest brother to try to, to know the whole time that Ghost was looking at me and Tracy um was a very big and important way that I wanted to make sure that I mean at the at the time he was identifying as female mm. he, was, he was born female um and I never really got to have like a lot of strong women in my life when I was uh. growing up so Tracy and I really wanted to be that person for him. So it was a motivator to be like a, a better role model. Yep. Fuck yeah. How, how did you treat your parents knowing that they had been through this shit? And it was, I mean, I'm assuming trust was tough to like muster. Yeah. Um, it, it definitely, definitely was. Um, I got, a lot more background when we were doing like family therapy as to why they made the decisions that they did. 
Um, and then, you know, they got to hear about how it impacted us. Um, so up until I came out to my parents, we were, we, we had worked through a lot of things and we were fairly good. When you say up until. Yeah, we're not. (laughs) Mm. Okay. Yeah. But again, still a positive individual. So the the people that you so the support group seems to have a lot to do with for sure being able to. Um, and that's always a tough one to say because you have to be able to suss out what is a support group, a support group, and what is a like codependent relationship. Yep. Um, so listeners. I, because I completely agree. I would not be where I'm at if I didn't have the support group that I had. It's so wildly important. So surrounding yourself with people who want the best for you in a way that it's not for them. Right. I think that's, yeah, it's, it's always hard to convey. That's because, especially when you're growing up, like you think that you have this tight group and then they vote for Trump and you're like, fuck. <sighs> it's so hard when when you're like it's it's hard not to take it personally right because yeah. it's like especially when i have people that i know who voted for him and i was like it is literally detrimental to me as a human being yeah um so it's hard to not take it personally yeah i don't think texas would have gotten as brave as it did to make that fucking abortion I mean, is it a law or is it like, I don't really understand. It sounds so fucking insane. Like telling people that they can rat out somebody who got an abortion. Like it's fucking crazy. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's very starting of the handmaid's tale. Yes. Oh my God. Really terrifying. Gross. (laughs) Yeah. So when people say like, ah, it's just, it's politics. Like, what's it doesn't matter. Like, we're still the same people. It's like, well, your people kind of wanted, you know, to put POCs in cages and do some not so cool shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and encourage all these fucking closet racists and bigots to be like, oh shit, yeah, now my voice can be heard. And, mm-hmm. and they, I'm sorry has- that I always do a Southern accent when I make fun of these fucking people, but. If the- because it's alive and well here <laughs> yes. in Minnesota as well. So so yes, but my my default is also to do a southern accent. Because I mean, in Minnesota, when the gay marriage uh, bill passed, uh, it was forty nine to fifty one. Yep, split in fucking half. I was at the Capitol. Is it an alarming number when when this happened? And it was. The most amazing historical moment that I've ever been a part of. Have you heard my story of where I was? No. I was at the paper mill. One of my supervisors uh, is lesbian. She's been in a relationship for 17 years at this point. Um, badass, hard worker, like got to the position that she got because she worked so hard. I was listening on the radio at my desk. I heard the news ran down to where she was at and there was a bunch of other guys in there and I'm like, Tina, did you hear? And she goes, and like 
flagged me over and we had to go into her office and like silently celebrate because everyone that we worked with, there were people that made it clear to her, like, I respect you, but this is what my church believes. It's like, why do you even need to say that shit? Yeah. So, I mean, she was it for the older generation. Like we knew it was dope for the younger generation. It's an incredible thing. Like Kim was saying about her dad, like being like, this doesn't affect me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but man, for like the people that were, were like trying to live normal lives already, they were just like, well, but what's going to happen? Cause they've seen shit go sideways so many times throughout their lives. Like, yeah, that's it, like, it's synonymous with 9-11 to me because it was such a similar feeling of like, oh, you, you still feel like hopeless and afraid. This sucks. Yeah. And to know that Ghost has never known a world where he couldn't get married to whoever he falls in love with is a world that I wish I would have grown up in. And, like, that's why we do this shit. Yeah. Like, because it may not be, like, yes, it's impactful for me, um, but it's more impactful for him. Yes. That's, uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> people call us, like, snowflakes and stuff, but this shit started in the 60s. When they were saying, we want peace, we want all these things, what do you think a peaceful world was going to look like? <laughs> Yeah, an equal world. To them, it looks like a bunch of pussies. Of course, that's what we're going to look like. We're not going to want to, if you want a peaceful world, we're going to not fight each other. We're going to want equality. Like, yeah. What the fuck did you guys think was going to happen? For sure. We're going to speak loudly, not with our fists. Anyways, (laughs) I mean, that's a good segue into the next bit, which is like the. I mean, seven years, that's a long time to sit with something. Yeah. I mean, to, I haven't gotten a chance to really talk to the younger generation about like discovering their truth because Landon's 12 and he's already, he already has these experiences with these people Mm -hmm. and it's like fascinating. I could never imagine being his age and finding out. No. All of that heavy shit. So, I mean, I guess to those that are still, because like I said, 49 to 51, that's thousands of people who are still not in agreement about your quote unquote lifestyle. Right. Um, So, I mean, what did, do you have any advice or perspective on your time waiting to discover your truth? Yeah. You know, I... While I told Ben and the people closest to me, I intentionally waited to tell my parents because I knew that A, they wouldn't be accepting and B, they probably wouldn't understand because I was still with Ben mm. Um, because they would just be like, oh, well, at least you guys are still together. At, at least we know that you'll end up with a man. Um. I mean, just for me is don't wait. Don't 
wait even a minute longer than you need to to be your true authentic self because let me tell you the amount of stress and fear and anxiety that was shed away the first time that somebody asked me how I identified and I said bisexual was mind-blowing. People still ask why... Why do people need to come out? I wish we didn't. See, and I'm curious about your perspective on 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 that. Like, what is the importance of still coming out in a in a world where it kind of seems like we're moving away from the necessity of it? Like, to people who it doesn't affect, obviously, the majority of the cis population, we're like, who fucking cares? What's What's the big deal anymore? Everybody's gay in their mind. Yeah. Yeah. And everybody is gay, which is awesome. (laughs) Um, So I think as a bisexual, it is important to make that distinction between not being a lesbian and not being a straight person Um, because it's you come out several times throughout your life. It is not just a one-time experience. Um, And I remember coming out as bisexual, dating my girlfriend, and then dating all genders after that, and then meeting my partner, Tyler, and having people go, oh, so when you dated girls, that was just a phase. Mm. Um, and now we're now we're back to being straight, right? <laughs> um, and it's like, no. And also, when I was when I was with my my one serious girlfriend, um, I got called a lesbian all the time, which was so interesting to me because no, like if you knew me, like how wild that label was when just a couple of years ago I had no idea that I would be dating women. Um, so I, I think that it is important. And even when I started dating Tyler, I had people, a lot of people in the queer community, but like, but I thought you were bisexual. Mm. I'm like, do you not know what this means? <laughs> like <laughs> that I have the possibility of falling in love regardless of gender. The person that I fell in love with happens to be male. And there's this very um this quote that bisexuals use a lot is I didn't choose a side, I chose a person. Oh. Uh. And Tyler's my person, you know, Um, and that doesn't have anything to do with me being straight. It seems like there's a couple of different things where people think that if you are, if you say you're bi and you're in what appears to be a straight relationship, then that means you're saying that there's a 
like a comma. Mm. So like this isn't, yeah, I'm dating a guy, but this doesn't mean it's the end. Like that, this is just for now. And eventually I'm going to go find a girl like this weird concept of like, if you say you're bi, then that means we have to be like afraid that you're going to leave us or, <laughs> yeah. or, or that you're going to leave him. Like, it's really strange to me that you like, it can't just, yeah. Like you were saying, like you chose a person, you still chose one person being bi doesn't mean that you're, but it could be anything the next day. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And there are lots of people who date multiple genders who are in open and polyamorous relationships. And I tried that. It doesn't work for me. And if it works for them, that's fine. But I am a monogamous person at heart. And you're a lobster. I am. <laughs> I am, and he's my lobster. So, yeah. Um, when it comes to the social work side of things, because what what is it that you work uh, uh, in specifically right now? I run a drop-in center for young people who are experiencing homelessness. Okay. So I, I work with homeless kids between the ages of 16 and 24. What seems to be... Like, is there a commonality in the reason why they end up homeless and needing help? Yes and no, because I I don't want to. Not that I'm trying to put like a label on why all kids end up homeless. But the reason I ask is because too often people say like, ah, they're homeless. End of story. Mm -hmm. Like they're doomed for the rest of their life. What I mean, what can... People who are pro-life, <laughs> listen to this <laughs> yeah, and be pro-life for these fucking kids. Yeah. Help these fucking kids. There are plenty of living children in the world who need help. So that's why I ask. Yeah. And that's a very, very good point um, because a lot of the youth that we have worked with have been through the foster care system um, and still have not been taught the life skills. And end up homeless. Um, the I would say the main reasons, if we were to try to point and have an easy answer. How about instead of reasons, a lot of the cases you see? Yeah. Um, a lot of family dysfunction, whether that be abuse or chemical dependency, um, needing to leave the home. I don't want to make it sound like a choice, but when safety is impacted, um, choosing, choosing to leave the home. Yeah. Um, More like running. Running. <laughs> um, also, the, I think that it, we would be missing an entire side of the picture if we didn't focus on anything larger than the individual mm. because affordable housing oh my god housing prices have not kept minimum wage has not kept pace with the rising costs of housing there's this stereotype that homeless individuals don't work and over half of the kids that i work with 
have jobs. Wow. They are going to low wage, low skill jobs every day and can't afford can't afford a studio apartment because they're making $10 an hour. Um outside of Minneapolis, the so everyone's like, "Yay, $15 minimum wage." Yeah, in Minneapolis. <laughs> not in Dakota County where I work. And if they're going to Minneapolis, then they're spending a shit ton of money on gas to go back and forth that it just pretty much like cancels out anyway. Yeah. So, um, you know, that and then also the intersection of race and criminal background and over policing of certain communities. And um, well, gets- and you have predators that if these kids open up about their situation, people that want to take advantage of. Ugh. Like, uh, I had somebody on who was homeless at the age of 13 and she was having to make the decision of like these older men hitting on her and asking for sexual favors. And she would have to be like, I guess for five bucks, I, I, I need fucking anything. So. Sure. And and we call that a choice, right? It's not a choice. Yeah. Um and and so survival sex is the term that we use. Ah. Um trading sex or sexual acts for something to help you survive. Um and that might be money, that might be a place to stay. Um it could be food. And I have never been put in that situation. So I cannot say what I would do. You know, I just am very thankful that I've never had to be placed in that situation. I, I, I mean, I would definitely say family dysfunction is a key player. We've, there's a family shelter called Dakota Woodlands um, in Dakota County. And it's the one family shelter that we have. And I've asked young moms because we work with pregnant and parenting homeless youth as well and i i let them know hey there's this family shelter would you be interested in going there and they would say no i stayed there when i was a kid and so like generational poverty generational trauma it's so real and they you know experienced those things as a kid and now are experiencing them with their kids and we have to do something to break the cycle. Wow. Is there anything that people can do? Um, like, are there places to donate? Are there like, how can people help like the organization that you work for or in their County, maybe even um, with the homelessness or you know families that are struggling does that make sense what i'm trying to get at like yeah um you know when we opened up the doors of my program six years ago there were people who were like wait what are you doing in apple valley we don't have homeless youth here this is an affluent community (laughs) and so we were like damn we thought that we were going to open and just start working with kids. Right. 
Well, we opened and then we needed to do a bunch of community education because we need those people to help identify kids and send them to us. Oh. So even school social workers, teachers, principals, librarians, we went everywhere and we're pretty much told, nope, that doesn't happen here. Wow. And now, six years later, those are the people that are calling us and saying, hey, I started, I had a conversation with this young kid and um, she told me that she's been sleeping at the park the last couple of nights. Or this kid's family lives in an apartment complex and he sleeps in the stairwell um, because his family changed the locks. I think that unless you know the scope of the problem, you can't be helpful. And... It wasn't until those same people started hearing the stories of the youth that we serve that they were like, oh, this is a thing. Um, and and now they recognize it and now they can and now they can help. But I don't think you can do that until you recognize that homelessness is not a metro problem. It is unfortunately an everywhere problem. It doesn't have a geographic location. Wow. Um, there's this thing that we do once a year called the point in time count. Mm. And it never fails. It's the coldest fucking day of the year that we hit the streets and literally count unsheltered folks. Um, it's the third Thursday in January. Yeah. Um, so when we do the point in time count, um, we have a lot of conversations um, with people who are like, what are you doing? Um, and because we're going to 24 hour um, restaurants, seeing if people are sleeping in the booths, um, walking around parking lots, trying to figure out if people are sleeping in their cars, maybe sometimes looking a little creepy when we're <laughs> peering around. Fogging up their windows. Um, and... It never ceases to amaze me whenever we get the results. We call it the pit. Uh, whenever we get the pit results, it's a 50-50 split between the metro and greater Minnesota of how many unsheltered individuals outreach workers find in the dead of winter. Um. And yes, Minneapolis and St. Paul have a lot of services, which is easy for us to be able, easy for us to be able to find people. It doesn't take into account the folks who are camping in Bemidji. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so if you think that Metro, if you think that. Homelessness is a metro problem. I hate to burst your bubble. It's not. Um, there are a lot of people who are homeless in the metro because that's where they go to get the services. Right. Um, but you shouldn't have to leave your community to get help. Yeah. I, Kim and I, uh, one year on our anniversary, we went to Olive Garden and uh, the one in St. Cloud. And... We were about to leave and I saw across the street, uh, individual, uh, heavily layered and, uh, pushing their wheelchair and it's like barely going. 
Uh, he has one leg and I didn't see, I mean, there's cars constantly going by there, right? People everywhere. Nobody's getting out to help. So I was like, all right. Like we didn't even talk about it. I just said, all right. And Kim was like, okay. And so she hopped in the driver's seat. I run across the street and I, <laughs> I just grabbed the back and I go, where are we going? He's like, oh, you don't have to. And I'm just like going. We're already, we're already there. <laughs> like, uh, so he needed to get to Shopco at the time, had a pharmacy. So I got him there and got him to the pharmacy and I just still didn't feel right. So I waited and he came back with his prescription and I was like, so where, what are you going to the shelter or where are you going? And he was like, oh no, no, no. I have a, a sleeping bag that's uh, rated for negative 30. And I was like, what the fuck? And I can't remember what was going on at the time, but like we couldn't, there was nowhere we could take him. Yeah. And I was like, this shelter is shelter was probably full fucking miserable. Like I felt absolutely gutted and I, I only had 20 bucks in cash that I could give him, but it was just like, that's nothing you're ha <laughs> like for that to make so much sense to him. Oh no, no, no. Negative 30 degree graded. I'm I'll fine. Be fine. <laughs> it's terrifying, dude. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's his reality. So, I mean, education, acceptance, empathy are like huge key players in any type of change happening. Yeah. Because it seems like there's a lot of head turning. Mm -hmm. Like they see it and they're like, oh, can't believe this still happens. But then they just go to see Pearl Jam for the 50th time. <laughs> I, I remember... Um shopping at savers for back to school clothes and there's that um in st cloud there's that arby's right across the street oh yeah yeah um we all like went to go get arby's after we went to savers uh for back to school shopping and i was probably 10 and we were at a red light on division and there was somebody with a sign and i rolled down my window and i gave him curly my curly fries and um, my mom was just like, why did you do that? Like, I just bought you those, you know, and I was just like, I think that he needs it more than I do. And like. When it all comes down to it, it's just seeing people as other humans who are struggling. There's always this misconception with the science, too. Like we saw a dude with a sign again in St. Cloud uh, asking for money for food. We went to Chipotle, got him one of those giant fucking burritos, and then he was done. He was like, no way. Like, he wasn't there to just con people. Yeah. He took the burrito and was like, this is exactly what I fucking needed. Yeah. Like, basic human needs. It, but it... Oh, man. Another... Per, oh, that oh. person that we were talking about before, the thing that I cut out, uh, they talk about how there's homeless people who they're just conning and they uh, they set up a spot, get their money, and then they drive off in their cars and it's just how they make money. They just con people out of money using these signs. It's like, where? Show me this person. Yeah, I've, I've heard this a lot in Vegas. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, people, you know, make 
and then some ginormous figure which can never be accurate oh yeah they make <laughs> beggars on the street make a hundred grand oh my god um yeah. in on the vegas strip don't ever give any of the beggars money who and it's just like there is no way there is just like just think logically for one second yeah like there is no way that that happens no and also this isn't vegas also, if you see it on YouTube, it's someone who just wants content. Yeah. They, somebody and their buddy were like, oh, you know what would make people's eyes open is if we just set up a fucking thing like this. <laughs> and some dude dresses up in a dog shit fake homeless outfit and then does the thing. It's not convincing at all. Real homeless people, they're weathered. You can see that they are defeated and like. <sighs> Even if I don't have any cash on me, I, I still will like wave and smile. Like you and sometimes I do have cash on me and I'm just like, fuck, I'm poor. I need this cash, you know, and but it doesn't cost anything to just like be a nice person. And there are people who literally will turn away from people who are at an intersection so much so that they start to question if they are literally invisible you know wow and to acknowledge just acknowledge somebody smile at them like you don't know what that impact is going to be yeah so, so why not be a good person yeah <laughs> So are there any, like donation wise, is there anything to, like anything to put efforts towards as a, a what are we called? Citizen? Yeah. So. Civilian. That's what I was looking for. I would definitely say that like education is the first step. Um, education and awareness to know what is happening in your own community and then figuring out the resources that exist within your own community. Unfortunately, there might not be any. Um, but I, if there are, donating to that community so that you don't need to be the expert. Ah. Like, this is our lives. Like, this is what we do. This is what we love. And we're damn good at it. And... You shouldn't need to recreate the wheel. Just give us the opportunity to be able to do what we do. So can people donate to like your county? So to individual organizations like the organization I work for is the link. OK, Um, there's a million really, really, really great organizations that do the work on the ground. Um, So. I would say start there. Look at the different organizations that exist. Figure out which one aligns best with your values. Um, oh, okay. And and donate to them. Fuck yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to impart as the 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 queen of the buys <laughs> <laughs> on these impressionable listeners? Yeah. Um that's like the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> Queen of the buys. Um, I mean, I would, I would just say, 
like if there are any people who are questioning their sexuality that regardless of if you recognize that you have same sex attraction or not questioning your sexuality is normal like that should just be a thing that every person does when they start to grow up because how else would you know you have to think about it and if you're gay that's fine if you're bisexual that's fine if you're transgender that's fine if you're straight that's fine just don't be a shitty person (laughs) yeah yeah I agree 100%. Because contrary to what some people think, it is not a choice. I would have never chosen this for myself. If you think that people choose their sexuality, choose their gender identity, like, just step back and think about that for a second. Like, why would you choose to make your life harder? You don't. Yeah. Um, It was something I never had a choice in. And also, if you come from a conservative or religious family who doesn't accept you, find your family of choice. Who yes. Does, who does accept you. That's We've been talking about that a lot on this show. Uh, Rudy Baker is a comedian. She's fucking fantastic. She has a free special on YouTube right now. Cool. Um. Or wait, is it Ruth Baker? Bah, you'll find it. Rudy or Ruth. <laughs> uh, but she talks about like why why do we have to be stuck with the family that we were given? We didn't pick that. That's un that's an unfair thing to do. And it made me think like, why is it that we promote when somebody is adopted that it's okay to say this is your family? You don't have to worry about bio parents, all that shit. Like these are the people that raised you. Don't ever feel that you're outside of family just because you're not blood. Why not the reverse where we, where we can go, you guys are fucking horrible. You do nothing but like bring me down and put me in terrible situations. I need a family that's going to actually support me. So I'm going to go make my own. Yes, do that. <laughs> it's awesome. My partner's mom. Accepting in a way that my mom never was. And why can't she be my mom? Nobody yeah. seems to have any reason, so <laughs> I think she's your mom now. Yeah. Well, she's also said, oh, you have a trans little brother that your parents don't accept? Well, he's my kid now. So she's just like the collector of queer kids. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Which is awesome. She's like uh uh like uh queer Peter Pan. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That is fucking awesome. Well, Steph, thank you again so much for doing this. This was such a fucking blast. Yeah, um, thanks for having me. Yoth. Anytime you want to come back, if there's like a topic you want to hit, feel free. We would love to. Um, I love you. Love you. I hope that you are safe. I am very safe. And that things continue to go well for you. Thank you. And to the listeners, be well to yourselves. Mm-hmm.